Isn't, isn't God good? All of the time. All of the time He is good. Amen. Amen. Family, I greet you all in the precious, wonderful, never-failing, almighty name of Jesus. Um, it is said that the two biggest fears in life is death and public speaking. And it is so true. For those of us who've done Mondelin, you will recall how difficult that is. But I pray this morning that I decrease so that he may increase. It is not about me. It is not about the amazing singing. And even though I have to commend even our amazing piano player, I've been listening to your CD this week, brother. You've really blessed me. My Afrikaans has increased exponentially. <laughs> now I'm praising him at the Met die drama, met die harp, met die klikkende sambale, big, big words. You've, you've really blessed me this week, my brother, seriously. So if you haven't, go onto iTunes, onto all major platforms, you'll search for Sia Dikana, you'll find his latest album there. Really, really blessed, talented. You know, it's like when my wife makes that, that, that biryani, you know those extra spices that you don't know what is it? You don't know what is she adding in there. This is what this brother does with the piano, and uh, God bless you, brother, seriously. So this week we are in the book of John and I trust that you have been digging and mining that book, the book of John and I know it's one of those books that we've read so much. We know John 3.16, for he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that's as far as we go. We don't go before, we don't go after, but I encourage you even after today to please go and read the book of John. It has really, really, really been blessing me. And you know, there's, there's, there's a scripture that stuck out for me this week uh, and in the last week. Uh, it says that when you choose to, to take up your cross and follow me, you will suffer persecution, but know that I've overcome the world. Jesus encourages us, and any preacher will tell you, or any, anyone who's doing a work for God, how the attacks come. This has been probably the, the most difficult week for me in my life, I think, outside of some very difficult times, from very heated situations at home with my wife just five minutes before we had our marriage course at our home there was heated debates and we'd like trying to patch it up before the people at the gate and it's like hey babe what's the story here what's the narrative but this is this is life right and from my sister getting a diagnosis to having early onset osteoporosis to my mother having potential scans for cancerous stuff that she's still waiting for to financial issues in legal battles with, with people who owe me lots of money from every corner of, of the attacks. And I'm like, I must be doing something right. <coughs> when you are searching the scriptures and trying to bring a message to God's people, the enemy is not happy. He is not happy and I know that God is good through it all. And as even Clinton said last week, I believe it was at Pastor P's mantra, is that even through this, yet will I praise God. So. If you take away nothing from this message, just take away the fact that God is in control and He is on the throne. And that is what I got from this. So, as we go into the book of John, I'm going to um, try and be on time. I'm going to preach maybe this way so I don't see the clock. So, if, but I, I have time myself and I should be on time. So, you turn with me to the book of John and um, that is in the New Testament. It is the fourth gospel. And as you turn there, I would just like to give you some background to this book. So um, I think sometimes we take for granted that biblical literacy amongst the congregation is not always as we, as, we, as we understand. So when we look at the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So just 
giving context into the New Testament. So we understand that the, New, the Old Testament was the covenant under law where God had, had given the people of God a, um, a set of laws and they had to follow it. And this is the covenant that was established through Abraham and through Moses. Um, and when we get to the New Testament, there's a new covenant that is established. It's a new agreement. It's a new, it's a new form of, of relationship between man and God. And when, we, when we're looking at the New Testament, as Bevan always says, we need to look at it through, through lenses from, from the Old Testament. So we don't look at the Old Testament or the New Testament in isolation. This is one volume and one collection of books. So when we look at the book of Ezekiel, we go back to the book of Ezekiel 1, and you can read it in your own time. But Ezekiel has a vision. And in this vision, he has a vision of heaven, and he sees God and his chariots. And he sees a vision of four living creatures. Now, these are the four living creatures around the throne. And very fantastical. You know, you think maybe it's on the borderline science fiction, but you see many eyes and many wings and all of these different descriptions of these angels. But something sticks out. And in this description that Ezekiel is having or giving to us, you'll see four living creatures. And these four living creatures have four different faces. The one is a face of a man. One is the face of a lion, one is the face of an ox, and one has a face of an eagle. Now, it sounds very Egypt-inspired, um, um, but when we look at it from the perspective of on heaven, in heaven as it is on earth, or on, on earth as it is in heaven, this, this really colors the way we look at the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament, you see four living creatures, and then you see in the book of Revelation that the, the author of the book of John is John the Apostle. And when we get to the New Testament, you see the same picture. You see the same four living creatures with the same faces. But when we get to the Gospels, you see that the Gospels take on this picture. There's the Gospel of man, the one with the face of a man, which portrays Christ as a man. As we like to say, the man above. And we do have a man above who is our representation. He is our, our, our advocate, our attorney, the man who stands as propitiation in the middle, as, as, as mediator between us and God. And then you have the Gospel of the ox. The ox is seen to be a worker, you know, you, you, you latch on these, these, um, these yokes onto the oxen and they would pull. This is the gospel of the servants. I didn't come to, to, to be served, but I came to serve. That's the, the picture that the author is trying to paint of Christ. And then you get the author of the lion, which is painting a different picture, the regality of God, the, the royalty of God. And then you get to John. John is, the way I see it, is if you have a movie. Sometimes you'll see a movie, it'll be a camera angle face on one point, and then you would see another camera angle pointing to something else, which reveals something else. You didn't see the guy in the back, but this camera angle reveals that. And then you have another camera angle pointing to different aspects, all pointing to the central point, which is Christ. So these three cameras are all focused on Christ from different aspects. One is showing his humanity, one is showing his royalty, one is showing his servanthood. And then you get John, who is sort of like the eagle who is like a drone camera from above that is showing everything else and sometimes contradicting or not even mentioning the same stories as you see in the synoptic gospels. Now synoptics are like you have uh, you know, something that is synonymous, something that is, is, is the same thing. It is basically saying the same thing. If you go look at the accounts of the cross, you'll find more or less the same stories said in the same way. Maybe some focus more on miracles, some focus more on, on, on uh, the discourses of Christ. And then you get John. When reading the book of John and doing a parallel study, you're trying to look at the cross. How was it told by each of these writers? And then John is, seems to be off on a tangent, mentioning things that aren't in the other books, mentioning things in different contexts. And it's, it's a difficult book to understand. And I was, I was sharing with Bevan earlier that 
I had gotten to Wednesday or Thursday in my, in my message and trying to paint a picture of doing world building, paint a picture of what was life like in the, in the time of John and what was the context of John, who was the author of John, uh, when did he write this book, all of these type of things and I got stuck in analysis paralysis and I deleted that message and I got to Wednesday and I'm like, gosh, I can't, I can't get lost in this, in this whirlwind because John is such a contentious book. If you go read the book of John and look at the background, there's so much discourse and arguments about the authorship and the style and you know how he, how he puts things together that it became such a difficult message to prepare. And I was like, Lord, please help me and give me direction for this. But looking at it as an overview, when we look at John, John is on his own tangents, as an eagle floating above and showing us things from a different perspective. So, you know, there's a great deal of material in John, apart from those discourses where nothing is mentioned that is corresponding in the Synoptic Gospels. You, you don't find much. You don't find much that John is, you can find a story in John and you can go find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is very difficult to, to put your finger on that. And, you know, just some, some facts about the, the book of John and John himself, that John was the son of Zebedee. You'll see it mentioned in the beginning of the book. Uh, and, it's, uh, and his mother's name was Salome. They came from a fishing village. Uh, they were a fishing family. He was the brother of James, not the brother of Jesus, but the other James, who was also a son of, of, of Zebedee. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus approached these two men first. He came and he said, follow me. Jesus, uh, Jesus came to James and to John and called them first. Now, interestingly enough, uh, what they call a triumvirate is, is, you know, James, Peter, and John were the unofficial triumvirates of the Twelve. Basically, that is the, the three most influential people on the Mount of Transfiguration, which Jesus took them up and they saw uh, Moses and Elijah on the mountain. Who was with him? You find, you find these closest of kin. These were the closest to Jesus. So, the ones he came to first... John also wrote the five New Testament books, which was the, the book of John, the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. He was the only apostle who was not martyred. Now, interestingly enough, if you go and do some church history research, you'll find that either there was somebody's head being, being taken off, decapitation, somebody was being crucified, some were crucified upside down. Uh, we see accounts of Stephen being stoned. We see uh, uh, Paul being, being, uh, being martyred, being crucified. And interestingly enough, I was fortunate enough to have gone to Rome and to gone to the Vatican City. And if you go to the Vatican City, under the Vatican, under the, the, the great church, uh, the Sistine Chapel, are the bones and the remains of the apostles. Now, I found this really fascinating that Peter, Jesus said to Peter, uh, who do you say I am? And he says, you are, the, you are the Christ. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there was a spiritual meaning to that, right? He means on this revelation that you see me as a Christ, I will build my church on this revelation that I am Christ. But the Catholic Church took that literal and built the church on Peter. Like literally, his bones are in the catacombs and they built the church. But I said that to say that all of the disciples, all of the apostles were martyred. Martyred means just killed in a brutal way for their faith, for their confession of faith. All of them except for John. Now there's accounts of John being boiled in oil and coming out unscathed. He suffered persecution. John was cast out onto the Isle of Patmos and I went to, to Greece last year and I went quite close. I would love to go to all of these historical sites um, and just to see and to be part of, of where they were and been to the island where, where Paul was shipwrecked. And he was cast onto this island called Patmos. And this is where he got the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ came to him. Now interestingly enough, he wrote this book 
between 80 to 98 AD. Now you find Islam coming 600 years after Christ and giving us accounts of Christ, that he was who they say he was. But you have John being an eyewitness. He says, we beheld his glory. We touched him. We felt him. We witnessed him. We walked with him. We knew this brother. This was somebody who had known him. He had written the book of John 80 to 18, 18 to 98 AD. So there's an estimation when he wrote this book. First, second, and third John was around 90 to 95 AD. And then Revelation was between that time. 94 to 98 AD. John died about 99 AD. So John lived a very fruitful life. Um, most naturally, he pro probably died of a natural life, was the only apostle that I can account. And you know, Jesus even said that I won't come back until uh, uh, he mentioned that uh, you know, John would see him coming back and some thought John would live forever. But some interesting facts about John and his designation, there's five times in the book of John that he's noted as the one who Jesus loved. Now, funny enough, there's a bit of argument around this, the one who Jesus loved, because it never says John the one who Jesus loved. It just says the apostle who Jesus loved, and it carries on with the description of, of, of a scenario. It says the one who Jesus loved. John has this funny way of never identifying or mentioning himself as, I was the one who Jesus loved. <coughs> Main character, staring. You know, in black community they say you're staring. Staring, yeah. staring you're the main character, you... you you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme, but he never puts himself in that scenario. He never says, I am the one who Jesus loved, because Jesus also later in the book says that I loved many. There was a great love that he had for his, for his disciples and his apostles, great love. But I believe John does this particularly, and many, many, many scholars agree that it is John. It's mentioned five times. And I believe that John does this particularly because out of rather than noting yourself because if you had to write a book you know you would want to be known for that so if you're a doctor you don't ever call a doctor sir or ma'am i'm doctor so and so i'm not sir i've worked hard for this title you want to be known by your titles and john purposefully decreases himself so that he may be known by the love of jesus and nothing else i'm the one who jesus loved i'm the one who loved jesus you see his proximity to jesus at the last supper table you see a michelangelo painting him as leaning and laying on his bosom there's this great love that John has for Jesus, just like David had for, for, for God. And there's this opposite, that Jesus loved this, this disciple. So I believe that he done that. And I want to ask us this question today is, what do we want to be known for one day, 100 years from now, that we created something, that we invented something, that we were some great in some, some field or some, some great achievements, or do we want to be known and associated with the love of God and nothing else? And that's why I believe that you look at John's writings, you go look at 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you go look at Revelation, you go look at the book of John, and it's painted and colored, and it is just so greatly colored by the love of God. If the love of the, uh, the world is in you, the love of the Father is not in you. For God so loved the world, there's, there's this great picture of Jesus' love that John tries to portray to us. And this is the author of the book of John. This is the man that wrote this book. Now, if you go look at the writings of John, there's been great volumes and great works written about the book of John, more than any other of his disciples. And John has, for the, for the little that we potentially see him writing, he has had a, tr a tremendous influence. John is on the Isle of Patmos and Christ comes to him himself, hands down this, this revelation to him and gives him the revelation of things to come, of the end times. So John is really in a privileged position. So as we look at, uh, at John, I just want us to understand, um, understand something is that the Gospel of John, you know, um, even as we're approaching Christmas, uh, normally we would go into the Nativity story. 
away in a manger, no crib for you. You know, we go into all of that sort of narrative. We go into pick and pay and we even see nativities everywhere we go. It is the nativity story. And that is the focus of Christmas. There's the focus of Christ coming to this earth. That is the central proposition of Christ coming to this earth. You find Matthew, Mark, and Luke having similar accounts. There's a manger, there's shepherds, there's wise men, um, there's Mary, there's Joseph, there's all of these different elements that are focused on. When we were in school, we even done the nativity play, I played Joseph, and we, <laughs> I still even remember my words up until this day, but when we look at that, we look at the accounts of John, and like I said, John is on his own tangents. All the others are agreeing, yes, yes, same thing happened, yes, there was a manger, yes, there was uh, all of these different facets, and then John comes. John opens his book with a poetic discourse of apologetic masterclass. If you, if you ever see a debate, you will see some elements. First, the person who's debating will come with an open statement and he will say, I am here to prove the following. You'll make his case, you'll make his statements, what he's trying to prove, go through all of his information and, and, and his arguments and close off his statement and say, I hope that I've proven what I've started off with. John does the same. John is an apologetic, but John John is a master with words. You know when you read and you just try and understand how he's trying to put this forward, it is, it is a masterclass in, in apologetics. And apologetics is the defense of the gospel. So what he's doing here, so when you look at the book of Matthew, Matthew comes on the scene and he says that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's David and then David's son is this one and then this one, this one, and you get down to Jesus Christ because it is prophesied that he's the son of David because it is written to the Jews. Jews, I want to show you that this is your Messiah. There's a, there's a proposition that he's making. Now, when you get to, to Luke and, and you know you get to the other uh, disciples, they're also trying to prove something, but John comes in differently. And that's why this book is so fascinating. So when we look at it, and let's, let's read through this, this passage of scripture. This is the prologue of the book. It is written in a different style. It is written in a, in a, in a poetic discourse. And then the rest of the book has a different style. So literary style, it is the first 14 verses and we'll read the first 14, 14 verses, and that'll be the sum of, of the message today. So, the first thing that will stick out for you here is the first three words. In the beginning. Pastor Bevan covered this in our, in our disposition of, of Genesis. The book starts off with, in the beginning, God. And that is the Bereshit. That is the first couple words of the book. And John is purposely making a connection between the New Testament and Old Testament. The New Testament starts off with, in the beginning, Elohim, in the beginning, God, right? So we read that, and John also makes a parallel, a mirror to that, to say that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man, uh, this man came for witness, speaking of John the Baptist, to bear witness to the light that all those, uh, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world, world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, 
to those who believe his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Amen. Such a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating piece of scripture to unpack. And you will get stuck for days, for months, for weeks in this passage of scripture because, and I hope to, to maybe unpack this and we look at it from an expository perspective, but this is probably the most profound truth in all of scripture. This is the nativity story. And here's the nativity story. It's four words, four words in Greek and four words in English. The word became flesh. Now these four words, so John is an absolute master in economy of words. And economy of words is using few words to say something profound or something simple for something great and profound. John does this repeatedly throughout this prologue. He uses four words. The word became flesh. Now, John, if you go and look at his writing, just the way he does this, John is saying something very, very profound here. He's saying something so deep, but so simply that a child can understand it. But even the wisest of the wisest of theologians will have to mine so deeply to get the full truth from this. This is how God speaks to us. Even when he speaks to us in parables, he speaks a simple truth that's like the man who sowed seed. And then the seed fell on rocky ground and thorny ground, and some fell on good soil. And he's speaking about us as believers, something very profound that we hear the word of God in church every week. And we hear the word of God and you're convicted and maybe the troubles of life spring up and a fight with your wife causes you to now to, to go and forget or troubles, money troubles make you forget. But some who had good soil grow and God works through them. And this is a profound truth, but said in such a simple way. And this is what John is doing here. So when, the, when you look at the accounts of Matthew, Mark and Luke, you find that they are looking for every, looking at, focusing on everything outside of the supernatural, they're looking at the naturalistic, historic context of Jesus' coming. And when we are seeing John's account, he is looking at the supernatural, and this is why we have this elevated view, this drone view of Jesus' birth. He doesn't start with the birth of Jesus away in a manger. He doesn't start with um, some accounts of Mary, Joseph, and all of these different accounts that we've heard, but he goes straight, straight, straight into the supernatural. So there's a supernatural reality in the book of John that the author explains to us as critical to understand. It's a non-negotiable reality uh, that is eternal. In the, the eternal, the infinite, the transcendent, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-present, everlastingly unchanging God of the universe became a man. And this is the message of John. This is the essential truth of Christianity and it's, more, and the, it's most importantly denoted in the word Emmanuel. This is the truth of John Emmanuel that God is with us God himself is with us the immutable everlasting unchanging unfathomable amazing glorious never-ending before time God became meat became flesh walked amongst us was tempted in all manner like we are so John writes his gospel to get this truth across that we would understand that Jesus was God in the flesh so when we look at it, John's message is summarized in this. If you want to understand it in the simplest form is the deity of Jesus. Now, the deity of Jesus is just a fancy word for saying that Jesus is God. Now, this is something that is being challenged and we don't even need to look very far. We look at Mormonism. 
Mormonism, uh, there's a belief that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. In Jehovah's Witness, they believe that Jesus is a created being. We look at Islam and we can find that Jesus was just a prophet, was not the divine son of God. We don't even need to look far outside of other religions, but the deity of Christ. If you can remove the deity of Christ, that Christ is God, you can remove a lawgiver. And if you can remove a lawgiver, then we are free to do what we want. And the satanic tenant that says, do what thou wilt becomes our tenant. That do what you want, there's no consequences. But if we believe there's a moral lawgiver, there's a man upstairs who will judge the world. Who comes down to judge the world? It's not the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus Christ. The rider on the white horse that John speaks about. He's coming and swords are coming out of his mouth, judging his enemies. And there's a lake of fire of eternal damnation for those who do not believe in him. And this is what the enemy eventually wants to do, is to remove Christ because all power, all authority, all dominion, all of it is given to, to Christ. All of it. He sits at the right hand of the Father. That speaks of power. That speaks of dominion. That speaks of all is given to him. Everything the Father has is given to him as an inheritance. And he comes to judge the world because he made the world. So that's the enemy attacking the deity of Christ. And you'll see that. You'll see the enemy attacking the book of Genesis because it speaks of creation. You'll see the enemy attacking the book of Revelation because those books are key. And you'll find the enemy most importantly attacking the deity of Christ. And that's why I always say whenever we see a different type of Jesus being preached, whenever we hear a different type of Christ, like the Christ that's accepting of certain things or uh, a Christ that has a different perspective to what the gospel says, we need to be careful because that's what the enemy wants to do is attack the deity of Christ. He's not really God. He is one of the gods or he's with God or he's side by side with God, but he is not God. And this is what John is trying to prove in this time, in this book, that the New Testament contains all manner of evidence that Jesus is God. He claimed to be God. He says, I am the Father of one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, there's direct statements made, by, uh, made to him. Thomas said, my Lord and my God of him. Um, there's titles that are given to Jesus that only belong to God, which they saw as blasphemy. But, uh, you know, they call him the eternal judge, the holy one, the first and the last, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Savior, mighty God, the Lord of Lords, Alpha and Omega, the Lord of glory and our Redeemer. These are titles only given to God the Father. He possesses incommunable attributes that only exist in God and can't be passed to us. He's eternal, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's sovereign, and he's all-glorious. These are only things that, that are attributed to God, but, but it is given to Jesus in the New Testament. He did works that only God can do. He raised the dead, he forgives sin, he overpowered the kingdom of darkness, he received and accepted worship. These are only attributes that are attributed to, to, to God the Father. So we see this, and because of familiarity, you know there's a saying that familiarity breeds contempt. You see your, your mother, your father, your wife, your husband so much that you, uh, it's, just, it's just you. But we see this, we see this first opening, opening um, discourse of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God, and we finish there. And we don't look any further because of familiarity, but we don't understand the profound nature of the statement. That the, the everlasting became temporal. And the most concise statements in the Bible on the incarnation are these four words. That the word became flesh. God became a man. The infinite became finite. The invisible became visible. The eternal one entered into time. This is the profoundness of the statement that the word became flesh. So when we look at what it means that we think that, you know, we, of, we often say the word, the word of God. But what John is saying here, he uses, he borrows from Greek language and Greek understanding, like Paul often does. Paul does this in, uh, later on in, 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 in these writings. 
he says there's a there's a there's a god here which says the unnamed god and you don't even realize that you've been worshiping you've been worshiping god you've been worshiping yahweh and he uses something from contemporary uh, understanding to elevate his god so when you look at what john does john uses a, a very sp a special word here. he uses the word logos he uses the word logos or logos he says in the beginning was the logos in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with god and the logos was god he's so this term this term had great meaning so also he's not explaining this so when you see a word or a term used and it's not explained you understand naturally that this was understood to the audience that it was spoken to there's an understanding already they know what this means because they're living in a greek uh, a greek world and they understood the origin story of how, how the Greeks believed the world came into existence. So the term Logos is loaded with meaning for both Jew and Gentile. The word is used in verse 14 and three times in verse 1. And there's no explanation of it, so we understand that they understood what this meant. So the Greeks would read this and immediately understand the meaning. The Greek word or term Logos was a term given to the creative force. Uh, the, the equivalent of the Big Bang, you can say. Uh, so it's the ordering, intelligent mind of the universe. This is an abstract idea. It's non-personal. It wasn't a person who, who had an intelligent mind who created the world, but this is an abstract idea, non-personal personal principle of reason and order and intelligence. It was a creative force, and it was a source of all knowledge and wisdom, a cosmic force, something from outer space or somewhere far that ordered the world together. This was what the Greeks believed ordered the world into existence. This was Logos. They knew this very well, just as we understand it to be God, or scientists would believe it to be the, the Big Bang, or there's some origin story somewhere that you would understand very familiar. So to the Greek, they knew this immediately, that when they said Logos, the ears perked up. In the beginning was this creative force, but this creative force wasn't abstract or non-personal. This creative force was Jesus. He was the one we walked with, the one we touched, the one we bore witness to. This is what John is trying to do in this opening sentence. So John is saying that this is a person, and this person became a man. To the Jews, the word of the Lord is a familiar concept. You go and look at the Old Testament and you'll see the phrase, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came. You will see this very common in the Old Testament. And the word of the Lord is simply God revealing his wisdom, revealing himself and revealing his truth. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, In the past God spoke, word, spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and at many times and in various ways verse 2 but in the last days he has spoken by his son so the jews knew what the word of the lord was and he's equating the word of the lord to the son of god so when we look at this we understand that the word became flesh the word became flesh the the verb in greek for became the word became is ginomai and Ginomai is becoming. So we can, we can look at it this in this perspective. Everything created is becoming something. Yeah. You can go look at yourself in the mirror tomorrow and take that old Facebook profile picture that you still have up. <laughs> and you can see that you have become something new. You've become something different. We are becoming. We are the gents are playing soccer. I was complaining to my wife that we aren't 16 anymore. We've become older. The body is not what it used to be. And this is the nature of all things. All things are passing away. This world and all its desires are passing away, as, as, the, as the, the writer says. So when we look at God, when it says that the word became flesh, 
God does not become anything. We need to understand that God exists perpetually as He is. God doesn't become more knowledgeable. God doesn't learn a new skill. He doesn't go into Udemy and pick up some other new information. He doesn't read the internet or read the newspaper and there's nothing that catches him by surprise. We need to understand the, the inherent nature of God is unchanging. Yeah. It says that he's the same yesterday, today and forever. From time eternal to time past, he is from everlasting to everlasting. God does not change. God does not become something. He does not learn. He does not grow. He does not gain intelligence. God is who he is. When he was asked, Lord, uh, when, when Moses asked him who you are, he says, I am who I am. God is perpetually himself from before the foundation of the earth. He was who he was. He's unchanging. It's hard for us to understand because we are changing. Our world is changing. Your car is rusting. Things are falling apart. The knees aren't what they used to be. Everything is becoming. And when it says that the word became flesh, we need to understand the context of that. So at no point was God ever incomplete. So God did not become a man in that sense that he became, he learned. So yet through God becoming a man, he was still God. The incarnation was the event where God took on the fullness of humanity while remaining fully God. There are some theologians or some scholars who would say that he gave up humanity and he was less of God because he was limited by the body and all of these different things, but he was still God in the fullness of the Godhead. It's not two natures, not mingled, fused together in indivisible oneness, uh, he was fully man and fully God, yet he took on humanity. We need to understand this. And he dwelt amongst us. So Christ's humanity was not an illusion. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't an apparition or a phantom. Philippians 2 verse 7 says that he was made in the likeness of men. Yeah. Hebrews 2 says he partook of flesh and blood. Such mind-blowing that the God of the universe became this frail, frail being to identify with us and to redeem us. Colossians 2 verse 9 for in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness, all of the godliness, everything that God is dwells within him. There was no diminishing of, of his deity. He didn't lose any of his godliness while he was on earth. He was fully God and fully man. And we need to understand that. So um, John shows us three things in this discourse. Right? First, he says that John shows us that the word becomes flesh is by the virtue of his pre-existence. What that basically means is that he pre-existed before time. Hard for us to fathom. Hard for us to fathom that the world didn't start when we were born. Ah, but what were you people doing in the olden days? Like my nephews and nieces, like was it black and white when you were born? And it's like, but I'm not dead. Not that old. But it's hard for us to picture life before us, our grandparents' days, great-grandparents' days, because the world started when we were born. And it's hard for us to picture a life before time. We can't fathom, we can't fathom. Even the musicians will tell you, musicians work with timing. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And you stay in that timing. And your first and fourth notes, and there's this theory around music. And that is how music works. What, what happens when you take time out of it? How do you play music with no time? How does music work? How does, how does space work? How does distance work? Everything works by different rules. That there was something before this thing of time, the flow of time. And Christ came from this eternal place where there was no time into this temporal place and it's hard for us to fathom but what John is trying to help us understand here is that this man the word became flesh that he was pre-existent this is the first the first that it, it talks about his eternality and hermeneutics will tell you that you have to have rhyming schemes so the first one is E for eternity for those who are taking notes so John shows us that the word became flesh was because of the virtue of his pre-existence pre-existence is he was before time in the beginning was the word. The beginning of what? 
We can't, we can't fathom this. This is complicated language. In the beginning, okay, in the beginning of what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was the beginning. Beginning of all matter and all space. And I saw something very fascinating that they broke down atoms into smallest forms, right? So atoms are seen as the smallest form of creation. And they, what they do in this hydron collider, they, they smash these things together and then it breaks down to smaller particles. And then they break it down to the smallest particle that they possibly can. And they're seeing that these particles are made of vibrations like sound waves. And it gives credence to the fact that the world was spoken into existence because it is, it is a sound vibration that makes up all of foundation of, of creation. And this is what God done. In the beginning, God said, let there be. And that thing never stopped being. He created one tree, and that tree made seeds, and that tree made more seeds, and that tree made more seeds. The trees we see now, and it creates ancestors of the trees first spoken. He didn't make more trees, he didn't make more water, he didn't make any more. He made one man, one woman. And those things are spread. And this is the creative force of God. It says that he pre-existed. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, everything that came into existence, the word already was. The Logos already was there. Jesus was already in existence when everything came into existence. He was already there before things were made. So he's not created. At the point when everything began, he already was. So the word was, the Greek verb there is aimi, and it's an imperfect tense verb that describes continuous existence before beginning. So when he's saying was, he's using this Greek word to say that, that there was this perpetual existence before time, Christ was. The testimony of scripture is that he is before all things. And like I said in John 8, he says, before Adam was the I am. Christ was there at the beginning. The second, uh, second truth, and um, for those keeping notes, it's equality, the second E. Uh, John shows us that Jesus was coexistent, coexistence with God. Coexistence is existing at the same time. So he was in the beginning with God, as it says in verse 2. So when you're looking at that, and it's really interesting when you read scripture, go and look at the original. English is such a limited language, even though there's millions of words. It's very limited in terms of its explanation. The Greek language. Now, English in itself is very complicated in that sense. When you say that there's a bow, my daughter has a bow in her hair. I pulled the bow and I shot, there's a bow in the sky after it rains, there's, there's many applications for certain things. When the word of God is speaking in terms of Hebrew and Greek, it is much more complex. You know, they say it's Greek to me. Greek is a complicated language, Hebrew even more so. When he's saying that he was in the beginning with God, the word with God. So it is a Greek word, proston and God, theon. So it's proston theon. He was proston theon with God. And it's an expression basically saying that he's face to face in intelligible, intelligent communion with God. Jesus was proston there on with God. He was with God, not just plumbing on the side, just like, hey, what you doing? Can I see? No, he was present. He, all things were made through him, by him, for him. He was a creative force that created the world. So when it says that he was with God, he was in intelligence, face-to-face communion with God. And that is what Jesus is, was. He is coexistent with God. He is equal to God. He's not a competitor to, to God. He's not competing with God. It is unity, perfect unity. He's distinct from the Father. It says that he was with God. So he's distinct and separate from the Father. Uh, he's not another God. It's like there's God and then there's Jesus and then there's the Holy Spirit. They are triune as one God. He's not a lesser God in value because he was the Son. It is equality with God. He, he pre-exists. He pre-existed in fellowship with God. And that is the understanding that John is giving us here. 
So when Jesus in John 17 verse 5, when he was facing the cross, he prays to God and says, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Powerful. He says, the glory before the world was, and that was is prostantheon, in face-to-face, -face, intelligent communion with you. Restore me to that, Lord. Which is why it was such a, uh, a heavy weight for him when he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because he felt that departure of God for the first time in his life. And uh, God gives a testimony of his relationship with Jesus in Luke uh, 3.22. He says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You are the son of my life that you mean so much to me. And this became so much more evidence after I got a child. Uh, you parents will understand just the feeling that you get in that delivery room. You don't understand it until you hold that child in your arms. Like you are, I don't even know why, but I will die for you. Like I will kill for you. It doesn't matter. This, now you can imagine exponentially how much more God loves his son in communion, in fellowship. Like I can just look at this child's face and even if you're crying and doing all of these things, I still love you to death. I don't care. The amount of love that God has for his son and he says, you are my beloved son. You need to understand the, the weight behind it. You know, you say to your wife, I love you. It can either be a dead love or it's like, hey, I love you. Like, you know, you, you, you are my, my heart. And this is what God is saying to his son. You are my beloved son, like the son of my life. I love you with a love unspeakable. And this is who is co-existence and co-heir with God. Not only does John speak of the pre-existence of Christ, but he also speaks of the co-existence. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was a word. And the word was with God, prostantheon, and the word was God. And we look at the word was, so not only was he with God, but he was God. And therein lies the mystery of the Trinity. He is distinct from the Father, having face-to-face -face communion with him, yet he is fully God and yet separate. It is a mystery we cannot understand fully, but I won't go into that now because we'll, we'll be stuck here for, for weeks. So when we look at the word the word is not an attribute of God. The word is not a message from God. The word is not a creation of God. The word is God. Yeah. And we need to understand that the word is God. He is a person who is with God and a person who is God. We need to understand that. So John, the third lesson, the third E is essence. John shows us that Jesus was self-existent. Self-existence. God does not need fuel from anywhere else. He does not need encouragement from anyone. He doesn't need anything external of himself to exist. There's no power source. There's no battery. There's no load shedding. There's nothing that he can get from anyone. God exists eternally by himself. When he says, I am, it's like a weird thing to say, who are you? I am who I am. It's like you're not answering the question. But he is self-existent, self-sufficient, self-sustaining. God does not need anything. He does not need anyone. So what John is telling us is that Jesus is self-existence. The theologians call it the aseity of God. This is the self-existence of God. John 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John's economy of words again. Minimum words to explain amazing things. John says, In him was life. Another foreword. And um, John 5 verse 26 says, for, the, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is not just physical life, but my sister on the left here, this is where you are named from. This is a Zoe type of life. This doesn't just speak of something coming into life, something coming into existence, but this is speaking in the broader sense of all life. This is life. This is life. This is Christ. So when he says he is alive, 
He was, um, so he wasn't given life. He didn't receive life, but he possesses it as an essential of his nature. In him was life. We need to understand that in Christ, in God, is life itself. Nobody gave him life, but he is life. John 14, verse 6, he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life. John's testimony is that he contains life in himself and that he is a source of all life. All life. One day when we leave this life, that life force will return back to him. He is the source of it all. He is life. And that's why when you see later on in Revelation, it says, now enter into life. This is a fascinating thing. It's like, what, are we not living now? He says, now when you go to heaven, enter into life because in his presence is life. In the presence is the tree of life. In his presence is life because he is life. From your bosom will flow rivers of living water. He is life, people. We need to understand that Jesus is all and he is life. So the entire universe falls into this category of becoming because there was a point when it didn't exist. God doesn't become anything other than what he is. He is the I am. He's eternally existent forever and ever. And we can't fathom that because when did he start? He didn't start. But how do we, how do we reconcile this? We don't reconcile this because our understanding is limited. So he's pre-existence, he's co-existence, and he's self-existence. We understand that God became flesh. So I just want to uh, wrap this, this, this thought process up here when it says that he is the life and the light. In John 1 verse 4, it says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So there's a distinction between life and light. Two different things. But here they are fused together. And uh, where we see that his pre-existent, co-existence, self-existence, um, that God became the light of men. So when the life entered into this life, the light overcame the night. And this is an uh, analogical way that John speaks. He's, he's comparing, he's analyzing things, he's Comparing and combining two different ideas here. You've got life and you've got light. And he's saying he's both of these things. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, The light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. God appeared in the Old Testament also as glorious light. You'll understand the term Shekinah uh, when he um, appeared and shone in the face of Moses because he was in the presence of God. There's a glorious light. When you see that uh, cloud by day, fire by night, they followed, you know, there was this luminous light, the Shekinah glory of God. This is the luminous light that God possesses in himself. This is, he is light. There's no sun in heaven. There's no load shedding for sure because he is light and forever and ever and ever we will be living in the light. And he even says, as I am in the light, live in the light also. Walk in the light as I am in, I'm in the light. God is light. And what he's saying that Christ is the light of men and he's the life of men. So we understand that the radiant reality and manifestation of God's life shines through his son. And it's like light shining into a dark world. So before Christ, this world was walking in darkness. Darkness, darkness, darkness. We go, don't even need to look far from the beginning in the account that we, we covered in the, in, in the flood. It says that men's imaginations were wicked and every thought and imagination of their hearts was just continually wicked. It's just continuous wickedness going on and we don't even look far, put on the news, read a newspaper, hear testimonies of people. It's just continuous wickedness. And Christ stepped into this world and he was the light of this world. And ever since that light, we go and see that. Um, and also looking at that, that's the same sentence construction as in the beginning was the word and the word is God. He says the light was the life of men or the life was the light of men. So John 1 verse 5 says, and, and, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. In other translations, it says that the darkness cannot overcome it. 
Uh, I don't know if you've seen that experiment where they take a match and then you try and look for the shadow of the match. There's no shadow. There's no shadow of light. Doesn't matter. You cannot have shadow because dark, um, light, darkness cannot overcome light. And that's what he's saying, that the darkness couldn't overcome it. Ever since he came, the darkness have tried to gain territory on the church, tried to gain territory on Christ, but it cannot overcome it. We see that in, while we are having load shedding, and I'm feeling it now because of stage six, but when you put a candle in a dark room, even that dark room is illuminated because of a simple little candle. That is the power of light. And that is what it does into our dark, dark lives. Because we were all once sinners, lost, lost in this world, walking around according to our own lusts and desires. All of us, there's not one of us, even my dearest pastor will tell you and give you his testimony. It doesn't matter who you are, all of us were in darkness at some point. Yeah. Until his glorious light shone in our lives. And for those who do not know him, won't understand what that light is like. It is like you open the curtains and you see the dust. Close the curtains, you don't see dust. Open it, and that is the light that reveals the darkness inside of you, and you're able to apply and change your life and work for the better. This is the light of men. This is what Christ is in our lives, and this is what Christ was in the world. When he came, darkness had to flee. Darkness has to flee, and when he enters your life, doesn't matter where you are in life, that darkness will have to flee. The darkness cannot overcome it. Doesn't matter what lies the devil tells you. Darkness will not overcome the light. Um, John 1, uh, 1 John 2 verse 8 says, Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He be uh, so when he first came, the darkness began to dispel and it could not overcome the light in his life. So when we look at uh, John 1, 6 to 8, and it says, uh, There was a man sent of God uh, whose name was John. This man came for witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. So Jesus came to display the life of God and the light of God in this dark world. So in closing, the proof that Jesus is the eternal God, and this is something you will have to defend tooth and nail because as we progress into these last days, people, we are living in, in you know, when I was growing up, and there will always be talk of we're living in the last days, and yes, it's been the last days since it was said, but you don't need to look far. Gender ideology, um, all of the abuse, all of the different sexual abuses, um, the, the mindsets of people, you see young people just getting messed up, the drug use, all of these type of things that we see in this world today. It's, you don't need to look very far to realize that we were in the last days. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1 verse 1 to 3 summarizes it beautifully, gives us, gives us a seven clause statement. It says that he is the heir of all things. This is the Jesus we serve. He made all things. He is the radiance of God if you're in his presence. You don't even need to see God because if you see Jesus, you see, you've seen God. You want to see how God looks at women, this feminism movement may have it wrong, but Jesus elevated women far higher than the station of the time. You want to see how he views children? He says, suffer the little children to come unto me. You want to see what God, what God thinks? Look at what Jesus said about everything. You want to see what he thinks about marriage? See what he says. For this reason, a man should leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. You want to understand the mindset of God? You see Jesus. He is the express image of God, just like we were supposed to be the image of God. The way he walked, the way he spoke, the way he had compassion. Everything that he'd done in his life was of glory to God. He is the express image of God. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. It's in the text. He upholds all things. Every atom is held together by Christ. Every atom. 
In the book of First and Second Peter says that the great day will come and the, the firmaments, the heavens will melt away because Jesus lets go. He lets go of every atom and everything dissolves. He purges our sins. Purging. He, he takes away sins that it is not even a stench of it on you. And he's at the right hand of God, so all authority has been given to him. This is Jesus. He's a creator of all things, and not, and he is uncreated. Jesus Christ is the creator. Uh, John 1 verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but then the world didn't accept him. His own creation didn't accept him, speaking broadly. But then it narrows it down in verse 11. It says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The world did not know him first, and then his own rejected him. Those who had the prophecies, us who are here today who have the book of, of God, who have the word of God, reject him. I myself have rejected him, turned away from him. And yesterday, evidently, I went to a family prayer, which I was reluctant to go to, but there was a lot of uh, liquid around, let's just say, put it that way, and a lot of um, hyped up personalities. And um, evidently, these people had also come from a conference at a very big church and lots of, lots of bottles lying around. And without judgments, I sat in my corner. And then I was asked, and I don't know if this was just maybe the enemy testing me or God allowing me an opportunity to witness, but I was asked, why did you turn away from that life? Why do you know? Because a very cynical way of doing it. And the only answer I could, I could, I could muster up in, because I don't want to cast pearls to swine and go deep into the theology at a drunken party, but I was like, because he loved me first. He loved me first. I ran away from him. I did not want him, but he pursued me like a... Like a a crazed lover who doesn't want to let you go. Like the book of Hosea, chasing after prostitutes. This is the love of God. And that was the answer I could muster up, is that He loves me so much. He loves me so much that I, how, can I, how can I turn away such a great love? The love of God. The Sunday school thing, it's the love of God is so wonderful. The love of God, it is theological truth in that, that He loves us so dearly. So dearly, the creator of all. And this is the great mystery, that the creator of all, the pre-existent, the co-existent, the self-existence, the almighty rock of ages, mighty God, the one who created, spoke the universe into existence and said be, and it had to obey. Spoke everything in creation into existence. Chose to be a man. Baffles the brain. Baffles the brain. But then he came to his own people and they did not know him. They had the prophecies and they crucified him. And um, there's three uh, two lines of testimony. Firstly, that John says, he says that uh, he created the material world. All things were made by him, made through him. The world is made for him. And the second line of testimony is that he, he created his spiritual family. Um, and you read in verse 12, it says, But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Becoming children or being born of God, that's creative process, that's creative language. Being born, having children, creative process. And it says that not out of the will of man, nothing that we can conjure up, artificial insemination or natural processes, but by the will of God, that God himself created the spiritual family, that is the creator of his own family. God created this that we have today. And we become a new creation. Those who are in Christ become a new creation. Behold, all things, all the old things pass away and all things become new. And we are made new creations, created in Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, for, for Christ Jesus, unto good works. And that is the gospel message, is that this great Savior, 
that we are told to believe in. John 1 verse 12 says, to those who believe in his name. Now what does it mean? Because the uh, book of James says, even demons believe. So believing in him and saying, I believe in Jesus, because maybe there's an encounter I had yesterday. We believe in Jesus, but maybe we choose this lifestyle over him. We believe in him. We believe in his name. So do demons. That's not enough. But what does it mean to believe in his name? Everything that I've just told you now, who he is. That is the pre-existent, co-existent, and self-existent, self-sufficient God of the scripture, who was before time, who came into this world, who was prophesied in the book of Isaiah 9, and his roots have been tied to the Davidic line. And if you read Romans 8.28, it will state and negate that we call according to his purpose in time, and before verse 29 is finished, you will see that we've been predestined to be conformed to his image. And this is the God. This is the one that we believe in. The name that we believe in. The fullness of his person. And I close with this question. Is that do we believe in the redeeming God of scripture? Do we put our full faith? Because people out there, it's challenging. Without Christ, we will not survive. We believe in him so fully. That this is my new mantra now. That no matter what I'm going through, yet while I trust you. I'll trust you. All of this, this difficulties I faced this week whether I have to lose people, whether I have to lose money, whether things are going uh, tempestuous in my life, no matter what the situation is, I will choose to believe in the one who existed before problems existed. Yeah. I will choose to believe in the one who was there, who said he'll never leave me nor forsake me. He says that, behold, I'll be with you until the end of the age. Do we believe this and do we apply this? Because something in our marriage lesson that we learned is the application is important. We can go through all of the lessons on how to be married and how to be a better man, but do we apply it? Do we apply husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church? I'm guilty of it. Sometimes I don't. Wives, do we respect our husbands even when they don't deserve it? Must he earn it? So he must love you unconditionally and then earn your respect and do all of the work. Do we do what scripture says? Do, are we faithful to what scripture says and faithful to the God of scripture? Because this man that I just described to you now, it may be familiarity and we've heard this, the word is with God and the word is with God and for God so loved the world and we hear this every Sunday. And this is a debate I had with my wife. She's like, you've preached this message before. And I'm like, yeah, but this is the only message that we should preach. Yeah. And we weren't happy with each other because of that. And I'm like, I'm going to preach Christ. I'm sorry if you've heard this before. And if you go and say this guy preaches the same thing every Sunday. But so did Paul. So did Peter. So did James. So did all of the apostles. They preached Christ crucified. This is the one that we put all of our chips on. We go to Vegas and we put all the chips on black. And that is who we believe in today. And this is the man I hope I can have left something with you this morning. That this is the great one. John uses an amazing economy of words. Four words to describe such amazing thing. In the beginning was the word. The word became flesh. This great, great, great work. This is the, the truth of all truths. That God, God, the universe, we can't comprehend. That God himself that we cannot comprehend became a man. For what purpose? So that we may be reunited and reconciled with God, that there may, may be none that perish, but all have eternal life. Get to know Him. There's no life. You will not be satisfied without Him. There's nothing that compares. This is Jesus. And I'm sorry if I'm ranting and going on, but I love this man, and I want you to know about Him. So, as we close, if I can leave you with one thing, is that the Word became flesh, and this is the man that we serve. Get to know Him. Get to know Him. Get to love Him because he was made for us he made all things for us he made all things through him for him and by him and he owns all things and he is the one who will come and judge righteously for us so let us be found in him church
So I pray that you bless this week, have a fantastic week, and I'm just going to ask Pastor Bevan to close in prayer for us if you don't mind. Thank you. Yeah.